Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey everybody, welcome to the Z-Dog MD show. I'm Dr. Z, aka Z-Dog MD, if you're nasty. All right, today's guest is a personal hero of mine because her work, along with Simon Talbot, on the moral injury of healthcare really modeled a lot of what our movement is about, talking about moral injury in our population and how it is often confused with burnout and there's victimization and all that. She's a psychiatrist. She's worked as an ER physician. She's has surgical training. She's worked with the military. She has a huge scope of experience to talk about issues that we're going to talk about today, which are the, the pending mental health crisis that's going to happen when frontline healthcare professionals start to process what they've been experiencing during the COVID-19 pandemic. And so guys, please welcome. And she, by the way, she wrote a stat news article that came out today that I shared or came out uh, very recently that I shared on Facebook and got hundreds of comments and really hit a nerve. Wendy Dean, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. I mean, it took a pandemic to get us together. You know, sometimes it does. <laughs> And you, you and I have spoken before on the phone and we're trying to figure out how do we get you on the show because there was a geographic distance. And I'd always said, Wendy, I don't do Zoom. Zoom is terrible. And now I'm like forced, right? To, to right. And it works. It actually works. It's not the same, but it is, it's, it's so essential that we're able to do it. So thanks for taking the time. Today's been a crazy day for you talking to press and doing all kinds of stuff. Yeah. It, it's been, it, it has been a wild ride. Yeah. But it's, uh, you know, and it's one of those things that's, uh, I'm so glad that it resonates with people and gives them language. And I'm heartbroken that it resonates with people and gives them language. That's the thing. Mm -hmm. Everything you, everything you write about, Wendy, is like, it's a shame that we even have to write about it. Like it's a tragedy. And yet it's so important because what you guys are able to do, and by the way, you're the president and founder of um, um, Moral Injury of Healthcare, which is, a, it's a not, not-for-profit or a for-profit? No, it's a non-profit. Non-profit. And again, the, the, uh, t tell me the goal of that organization, by the way, just so people understand. So the, we're out to reimagine better healthcare and to reimagine better medicine for all of us, for patients, for clinicians, for healthcare organizations. I mean, really, this is an opportunity for us to all come together and think about how medicine can be better for all of us. Now, and we'll put links to all this after the show. So here's something for the audience to recall. I did a rant, I don't know, a couple years back on 
how we shouldn't be calling this burnout, we should be calling this moral injury. And that rant was inspired by Dr. Dean's article with Simon Talbot that put into words what many of us were feeling. And I'd shared the article first, and I saw the response to it, and I realized this hit the same nerve in y'all that it hit in me, which is she was able to put words to our suffering and give it a sense of structure and meaning. And what I found with the piece you just did in Stat News about the suffering of trauma, emotional trauma, whether it's death or moral injury, whatever it is, has, has a structure and a pattern that we're not recognizing and therefore not addressing, and it's going to lead to problems. I mean, can you start maybe talk, filling us in on some of that? Yeah. The, so what I'm worried about is that healthcare workers, um, there was a big uproar at the beginning, when we saw that this pandemic was coming, everybody was worried about their safety. They were worried about being able to take care of patients. And so there was a lot of clamor, get us PPE, get us ventilators, get us whatever we need. And then once the virus hit and people started putting their heads down and going to work, that clamor quieted because we didn't have time to do any more of that. All we could focus on were, was keeping our patients alive. Right. And so that's quiet. And people in a crisis can look really good and they can they can appear to themselves like they're doing really well because we're able to compartmentalize and really push aside so much of the things, so much of the feeling that might interfere with our ability to act. And then what happens is a little bit after when the action slows down, we have time to start thinking and processing all of this, all of the events that we saw, all of the experiences we had, and it can come back in a flood. And we can't predict when it'll come back. We can't predict how powerful it's going to be. And it can blindside us. I think what, what you said is so accurate, even in the experience that I have as the person, the, the, the role I'm playing in all this, which is listening to people's stories. When the thing started, like you said, hundreds of messages from people around the country. We have no PPE. We're absolutely not ready. This is a complete crap show. We're all going to die. Then it hits New York in a way that really nobody really understood what was going to happen. New York was silent. I did not hear a peep from people in New York because they were heads down on the ground in that zone that we trained for. Now, what you're saying is when that starts to let up, which it's going to, it's already plateauing. That's when our, the, 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 the coping mechanisms that we had, which were maybe a bit of detachment, and you kind of, you, you really go through a good job of doing that in the article, saying these are the kind of ways we can either internalize, externalize, we can compartmentalize, there's different things we can do. But then when we have downtime and space for the first time, those, those feelings start to rise and they want your attention and how you deal with it then. And I think you started the article with the story about uh, two um, healthcare professionals that lost their lives, an EMS provider and an emergency physician, Lorna Breen. And the story with her that I remember reading is that she was super on the front lines, ended up getting sick with COVID, wanted to go back. They wouldn't let her go back. She went to stay with her family or something. And then the report was that she died by suicide. And does that sort of fit this idea that you have a reprieve and all these feelings come up? So I, I can't I can't pretend to know what she was thinking or feeling. Yeah. Um, but what I can say is that in my own experience 
of having been through what was a traumatic experience at the time where I thought I was doing just fine, head down into it, plowing through. I did not realize until about a month later when I had been out of the fray for about three weeks that I was not okay, Mm. right? That, you know, all of that in the downtime, those things sneak up on you. And it can be a trigger of anything or nothing. And for you, that was a triple whammy that I've never heard. Like your, your husband got sick, was in the ICU. Your mother, elderly mother fell and broke both hips and your brother had a massive stroke all in the same day, roughly? Yep. So, okay, first of all, that just shows there's not no justice in the universe because nobody deserves that. <laughs> and but second, that was that that was the trauma that you're talking about. And you went into clinician mode and you did your thing. But then the space opened up and you wrote about it very poignantly about how you allowed your friends helped you take little sips of the emotions. Can can you describe that what you mean by that? So what was happening in the time was, uh, you know, and I've had, you know, I had the same experience when I was um, in the trauma bay. I had taking care of patients. Um, the same experience um, in the OR when things got challenging. Um, and what it is, you only you only process the bare minimum that you need to to get you through to the next day, to the next hour. So. You know, I would call my friends and I would rant or I would just say, man, I, I don't know, you know, this, this is getting to me. And they would kind of hear me, validate it, put it, put me back together, send me back in. And, and knowing that I had, you know, if I didn't have them, um, I would have, it would have been much more challenging because I could at least offload a little bit to them. Uh, there was nobody who could do what I was doing and who could carry all of it for me but they could at least, you know, shore me up. Mm, mm. Um, and, and that's what I meant by you, you take sips of that emotion. You know, I could let myself be a little bit afraid and then I had to box it right back up and my friends helped me to do that mm. because they knew what I needed and they knew, you know, one of my friends knew that I needed just an ear, like she rarely said anything. My other friend would start swearing because <laughs> <laughs> that's what he's good at. I'm that friend. <laughs> um, right, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so, you, you know, I had, I had people who knew what I needed and knew what would put me back together and send me, keep me back in the fight. So that's, um, a, that's still a short-term coping strategy, right? So then what happens after that? Well, so here, here's the challenge is a lot of people think, well, why didn't you process it in the moment? Like, why didn't you just deal with it and feel those feelings and, you know, be mad and sad and scared and all that? Because if you take away that coping, if you take away the denial and you take away the compartmentalizing and you take away all of that, you might not function. Mm. Because when all those things come crashing through, you, it actually takes it takes brain power to process them. It takes energy to process them. It is distracting. It's distressing. And you can't, you can't be in your rational mind taking care of somebody else, especially in a crisis situation, if you're distracted by that processing. So, and, 
And that's particularly unique to our profession because maybe pilots and others that are in these very mission critical military, you have to do that in order to function. And actually I, I have an interesting angle on that myself because having gone from a full-time clinical practice in hospital medicine at Stanford to I round a few days you know, a month as a voluntary faculty in Las Vegas, when I round now, I have an open, an openness to emotion and experience that I could not have allowed myself when I was full-time practicing because I wouldn't be functional. So I have a great support team. And, and so I feel every patient in a way that I wouldn't allow myself to feel because I couldn't function. Now I have the luxury of doing that and the emotions are overwhelming at times. And so it's a real thing that we we have these separate uh, abilities to compartmentalize and it, it's it's essential to our job. But then the question is then what next? How, how do we, when those emotions come out, how do we process them? We need to honor them. Mm. I mean, we need, and, and I think that the answer is going to be very different for each individual person. So there are some people who are going to say, you know what? And um, if I start, if I start deconstructing this, I'm worried that all of the glue is going to come undone, and things are just going to cave in. So I'm going to keep all this together. There are other people who will really need to spend a lot of time processing it, particularly if it brings up past traumas or past grief. I mean, because I, I think that's the other piece of this that we're not that we're not talking about as much as we need to is we're grieving. Hmm. Right? Like this is collective, this is trauma for sure. It is also grief. Hmm. It's grief for what we thought we could do for patients. It's grief for those patients that we're losing. It's grief for the fact that they have that some of them will die alone. Mm. So it's both things. And I think getting to the other side of it, we're going to have to really spend to honor those those feelings and that experience and take the time we need to to walk through it. You know, uh I'm appreciating this more now. I interviewed a uh, APRN in critical care early on in this, who was working at Grady in Atlanta, seeing the first wave of COVID and is this real expert on ICU management of this stuff and great teacher. And she taught us about this stuff throughout the interview. She was emotional and would tell stories and would talk about the patient who's, they had to put the cell phone in a biohazard bag so that his family could say goodbye. And I, I, I realized I'm like, this is, this is really hard, but I was like, I've not seen clinicians behave this way about their patients in the moment because you see them all tightened up, but she'd had a minute now to let this kind of out. And her way of processing it was, it doesn't matter how many hundreds of thousands of people see it that ultimately did, she's going to do it right there. And it was, again, you honor those emotions. Yeah. And, and sometimes you don't have a choice. Hmm. And that's okay. What What is unique about this? I mean, there's things that aren't unique, but there's things that are very unique about COVID-19. There's a collective grieving, like you said, a collective trauma, but there's also a specific trauma to healthcare professionals, like you said. The You mentioned it in the article, the moral injury of fearing for your own life because you don't have enough protection while wanting to help a patient there that 
that has COVID or you worry has COVID. I mean, how, how is that affecting us? And are we being supported in those feelings? So uh, I, yeah, that's a challenge. I, I think when you watch someone die alone or when, when folks are, are witnessing so much death, it's traumatic. But when you watch someone die alone because you don't have su- sufficient PPE to go in and hold their hand, that's moral injury, right? Because you were screaming, we have to shut down the elective surgery two weeks earlier than we did. We have to shut it down and because we need the PPE. And somebody said, no, we're good. And in the end, it turned out, maybe not so good. You know, we do need to, you know, we don't have enough to be able to go in and comfort patients in their last days, in their last minutes. And that's the moral injury part of it. Because, you know, something outside of my control prevented me from giving my patients what I knew they needed in the moment. Mm, I think that's spot on. That's spot on. And what this led to, I think, a lot of antagonism between frontline healthcare professionals and management, whether they're cl- clinical or not. And, and, and I've talked about this before, and I actually had a, a thing where I ranted about how management is really, they, dr- they had one job, which is to keep us safe there. And I was feeling that same, f- hearing all these stories from the front lines. And then you talk to the management, like, you know, I had Rich, Rich DiCarlo on the show from Peace Health, and I talked to him on the phone a lot more than I talked to him on camera. And man, they are, they are trying to keep the lights on. They're worried about their staff. They're worried about their patients. Uh, there's so much that they're having to deal with that's out of their control and they're suffering their own moral injury. And now with operational revenue plummeting and everybody shut down, they're wondering, they're starting to furlough physicians and they don't want to do this. And yet here they are now another conflict, right? So this is a, this is, and people aren't really talking about the emotional valence of that or the traumatic valence of that. They're just, it's us versus them still. So, so, you know, the, the other role that I had that you didn't cover it, that you didn't cover in your introduction. Come on, man. Um, <laughs> I make those introductions up, man. I, I, I do them based on no science. I'm just like, this person seems like a psychiatrist. I don't know. <laughs> so, so the other role that I had um, most recently before I went to, to doing more the moral injury um, thing full time was as an executive in a very large nonprofit in a half billion dollar nonprofit. Mm. And I was, you know, I was making those decisions. Mm. Those decisions are incredibly wrenching. They, nobody makes them lightly. Nobody puts their people at risk without feeling distress about it. I think the challenge is that it's also very easy when you're in that remove to say, well, so here's, here's how we need to think about this. You know, the rationalization may be easy or we need to present a, a reasoned approach rather than, rather than being able to go to people and say, this is incredibly hard for me. I, I, my back is against the wall help me figure out how not to be there. Mm. Let's work together to try to not be there. So, okay, what you're saying, put a finger on what I've been trying to convey with varying degrees of success, which is 
communication, openness, a degree of vulnerability would be so freaking awesome, right, Wendy, from both management and frontline staff to say, you know what, we are all in this together. We are suffering. We might have you know, we feel like we screwed up a little too because we didn't prepare for this and we didn't see it coming, but a lot of people didn't. So we have to forgive ourselves and say, what can we do now? But instead, what I think has happened is people go into a defensive mode, which you understand quite well, where it's like, well, okay, now you guys, I'm getting these horrible emails that are personally hurting me. Like these kind of emails that would trigger any human being to put up walls. And that's what's happening. And then management says, you can't talk anymore. You can't speak to press. You need to stop this. And and then it becomes just a crap show, right? I'm trying not to curse because I respect you. Uh, now all the, <laughs> oh, you're now, welcome to. Now all the, all the other interviewers where I was like, F this and F that. Like, so you didn't respect me? What's going on? Um, so. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know what? I ride horses. I spend time at a barn. I'm good with that. Enough said. Exactly. So, so, so tell me how, how you see this, because we're going to get very shortly into your solutions. In other words, what are your action items? And I think one of them is communication. Absolutely. I mean, so, so one of my challenges with, with approaching problems that way to say, well, we don't have a choice, but to continue elective surgery. And so we're just going to put, we're going to, we're going to frame it in this way. Mm. What, you know, that's, that's a bit patronizing. <laughs> yeah. Right. And so what I would rather see is people th- is, is the administrators or the executives coming to the physicians and saying, okay, confession here. I am worried. You know, I, I, I wrote this in a Medscape article, mm. um, that the administrators were worried their organizations weren't going to survive the COVID virus. You know, they were worried that, and and rightly so, they're proving to be prescient here, that the revenue streams, when you stop elective procedures, the revenue streams dry up extremely quickly and COVID treatment does not pay like elective surgery procedures pay. Um, They are very staff intensive. They are resource intensive. And so in some ways they were absolutely right Mm. that they couldn't, they were worried. They had no assurance that they were going to get to the point where um, they would get rescued, right? That they would have any revenue flowing in. Um, But at the same time, knowing that going in, it would have been so much better to come clean with your staff and say, where our backs are against the wall. We are offering to take, you know, a 25% pay cut we're all in this together. Can you, you know, what are you willing to pitch in? That is exactly it. Because I'm hearing so many people now, you know, we have the, the executives not taking pay cuts. They're furloughing doctors. They're start, they want to restart elective procedures. It doesn't feel safe to us. We still don't have enough PPE, this and that. Well, there's no communication, you know, and what, what's, what's really crazy is again, you know, like, the peace health guys, I got a lot of crap for, for, for letting the COO on the show. He's a lovely human being. When I talk to him, his back is against the wall. He cares deeply about his staff. Now, again, there may be other problems there that I don't see, and I hear about it from the front lines all the time, so I get that. But these are human beings doing their best. Now, if we had open communication that wasn't so afraid of, 
you know, whether it's an HR violation or whether it's legal stuff or whether it's, you know, whatever it is, you got to realize, you know, we're all in this and we have to fight together, which means that that's one thing is to understand our shared mission and then communication. And I think you put that in one of your action items in the, in the piece, the other piece, the other piece you put up. So again, here we are, we're in a situation where we're going to lead to a lot of trauma, a lot of um, grief, a lot of unprocessed emotion. And when that comes to roost, if we don't have processes, we're going to see a, a, a difficulty in addition to the 1% rise in suicides we see with every 1% rise in unemployment. And now we're at what, 30%. So, and again, that's a whole nother discussion is how far to go with this. But back to this, what's, what should administrations and the public and others be doing to help frontline healthcare professionals process this stuff? So I think the first thing that they need to do is give them a break, you know, mm. ease up when, when they're done, the, the, there's going to be a powerful urge to just say, okay, let's go back to business as usual. Let's just gr wind those gears up and go. And there will be some in medicine who are chomping at the bit to do that. The folks who have been on the sidelines, they are ready. Those folks who do mostly elective procedures, they've been like, you know, tap, tap, let's go. Time, game on. And I understand their perspective too. But again, I think there needs to be a negotiation between those who are exhausted and are just kind of getting, they're seeing some light at the end of the tunnel and they're thinking, okay, maybe I can rest a little bit. Maybe I can get caught, you know, caught up a little bit. But I think there needs to be some negotiation about um, continuing to upstaff a little bit, continuing to, to overstaff slightly or have people on backup so that when, the, when those unexpected days happen and you, the doors blow open and all the emotions come out, you can call in and say, uh, you know, I need to tap out today. Yeah. And somebody says, yep, I'm on it. No worries. Yeah. The proverbial mental health day, but actually applied correctly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, it doesn't, you can't just be, okay, we've got some, you know, there is staff available to, to take your shift. It has to be one phone call Yeah. where you call your scheduler and you say, uh, mm, yeah, can't do this. Do can't do this. And so easing up is a key thing. And I think that's right now, of course, there are going to be resource constraints and the administration is going to say, we're out of money. Like, how do we staff up that way? And, but I think it, Again, would you rather replace someone who quit, suffered the end stage of moral injury, which is burnout, or worse? Or would you rather invest in your people because they're the main thing that makes healthcare work, right? Um, well, so yeah. for every person who leaves, it costs about yeah. almost a million dollars to replace them. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know. Seems like the math works out. Give them, give them a day or two to to process. And then another thing you said was checking in with your staff. And this is one thing. So checking in, you know how that is, right? You get the email, Hey, hope everyone's okay. Everyone hanging right. in there, but you this add, is, yeah, this is not a performative check-in. Yes. This is not a check the box check-in. Yes. This is a genuine heartfelt. I am a servant leader. I am responsible for you. I care about you. What do you need to be successful today? And then making sure that it's available and easy to access. So, so this is 
again, as someone who's worked in large organizations too, and has led a smaller organization, the, 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 the act of feeling valued and recognized and even having your suffering witnessed is so powerful. If leaders did that and nothing else, even if they paid people crappy and treated them like crap, otherwise, ah, that's not true. If, if, if there's, a, there's a lot of things people will tolerate if they feel like they are serving a role that is, a, that is felt and appreciated and that w- the struggle they have is actually witnessed and appreciated. And, and if your leadership acknowledges that suffering and says, here's what I'm doing to change that and is transparent and honest about that. And the limitations of that, because sometimes it's like, well, we can't get you 20 more nurses to staff the floor immediately. So what can we do to make life easier? Maybe there's a few less check boxes that you have to do. Maybe we won't hassle you about your whiteboard today, you know, whatever it is. And, um, and so I, so you say check in and mean it. And the way you mean it is with your actions and your words, right? So you have to do something. Now, the other thing you say, and again, I'm referring to your article because it's so well done. Um, really you have a gift at being able to put this stuff in a way that people can process it right like my gift is being able to talk that's all i can do yours is is really i mean this is this is a beautiful gift you have so provide support is the other thing you say now what do you mean by that and how is that different than checking in so i feel like um support comes in a lot of different ways and what that means is i'm gonna support like processing is a little bit different for each person so i am going to provide additional staffing for you I am going to provide mental health support for you. I am going to make sure that we have MOUs with local organizations that are going to provide um, either uh, crisis counseling or group therapy or something. I'm going to have MOUs with spin classes or, you know, so that, so that people are getting what they need and they feel like their organization is hearing them and doing something about it. And, and this is beyond like an EAP or one of these employee, employee assistance programs, something like that, that, you know, HR always has. Right. Because not everybody is going to process by talking, right? Some people are going to, are going to process by breaking stuff. Some, <laughs> you know, like, I mean, the recycling glass recycling bins are a great place sometimes. Mm. Um, you know, some people are going to need to skip stones for hours. Some people are going to need to just sweat it out. So the processing, if you proscribe what processing looks like by having, you know, processing groups and, and um, reflection rounds, those are great and they help some people, but other people just don't find that useful. Mm-hmm. And so I think there needs to be some flexibility in how we support I think you're right. And I think this one size fits all mandate of like, hey, we'll do some mindfulness, bro. Like that is not a one size fits all. Like I hey, I happen to like meditation, but if I tell somebody whose preference is to break things that you should sit and be alone with your thoughts, I well, watch them. No, that's not how it works. <laughs> so so you know, funny story, I was one of the first medical students in John Cabot Zinn's No way. Uh, uh, yeah. JKZ so I went to UMass. Dude, he's the OG of mindfulness. I love it. Yeah, and, so and I that spent lots of lunch times on conference room floors. It did not take. <laughs> <laughs> I love it that you were with like the guru of medical application of mindfulness, and you're like, screw this. It, 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 and it is, and it, I think it's, it's again 
a lot of this stuff you have to commit to in a way that we don't have the time. Like I could tell you, Wendy, man, if I could do cognitive behavioral therapy and journal and recognize all my cognitive distortions, I'd be so much happier, man. Just listening to the audiobook, feeling good by that psychiatrist made me feel better. But when I try to apply it and I recognize I'm catastrophizing or I've got all a black or white thinking or I'm overgeneralizing all the distortions, which by the way, we now see on mass regarding COVID-19 catastrophizing, overgeneralizing, black and white thinking. Um, boy, I'd be happy, but it's just not, it's not in my blood to be able to pull that off routinely. For some people it is. So you find what works for that person. Right. The other thing you said is listening. So, so administration and leadership should listen. What do you mean by that? So I think there's, uh, there's often a lot of talking, you know, the, the, um, I'm going to tell you what we're doing. I'm going to tell you what the problems are and what we're doing about it. And there's very little receiving. Mm. Saying, again, this idea of what do you need to be successful today? Um, where are the gaps that you see on the coal face of, at the coal face of care? Like where you're the one who's in this, in the thick of the fight. Um, you know, what do you need? listening to your people, um, getting that feedback, incorporating it, and then acting on it. Mm. Listening, again, is part of the communication piece. You know, we, again, we're talked at. I, I, I can think of a great example, New York Presbyterian, their CO, uh, CFO, COO. You saw that clip with the, yeah. Man, that's a tough one because she has a reputation for being an excellent leader manager, right? But then how she communicated when staff were sending her nasty emails about, hey, we don't want to come here. We don't feel safe. And they were back office staff. She said, hey, we give you a job. This is, you know, you're lucky to have this job. You come in and support the staff. And, and again, it was taken out of context. But again, the listening and the communication there, boy. And then she did a conference with CBS where she just doubled down on that. And it's like, there's a way to do that that shows that you're listening, shows that you care. And it's really, it's, it's, it's that it's, it's the appearance of that. Yeah. And it, and it, I think it, I think part of it, part of it is being, being willing to be vulnerable mm. and having, you know, having the emotional fluency to be able to recognize these people are scared. Their anger is fear. And if I respond back to, if I bite back, mm. then we're just going to get into a really nasty fight. And everybody's going to come out bloody. Mm. So how about if I just check where I am and get curious about their anger? Where is that coming from? Yeah, it's interesting because watching what she did, she said, listen, it is very upsetting to the leadership to receive these emails. So she's actually pointing at her own anger there. Um, and it would have been interesting. I, I, I've often weighed how I would have handled that, but I'm curious. Well, and her fear. And her fear, yeah. I'm guessing that she was she was fearful as well, mm, mm. right? She didn't know what she was asking them to, them to come into. She knew that she was going to put them at risk, mm, mm. and and she didn't have another choice. Mm. But still, it would have been better to be vulnerable and say, "I don't, I don't know what's coming either." Yeah, I feel your fear. I have it too. Yeah. So let's walk together into it. Beautiful. I, man, if that could all happen, if we could just show a little more vulnerability, maybe a lot more, 
You know, it, it's a very hard thing to do because we're so conditioned in healthcare too to be the rock and the wall and, you know. Oh, yeah, well, yeah. let me tell you. So I, a friend of mine, one of my best friends read the article and she's like, wow, your vulnerability. I was like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, immediately you're like, I wasn't vulnerable, bro. I was just telling you facts. <laughs> well, so because I said to her, oh, I didn't have time to be vulnerable. That was like, that was the fastest thing I've ever written. And I think it was partly just, let's just get through this. I, yeah. I do not want to be vulnerable. Wow. No, the vulnerability came through actually, but, it, but, it, but, but you could tell actually, I was thinking this when I read it, I was like, oh man, this is like vulnerability through the filter of professionalism because the, the, it's so hard to do and you don't want to do it in a way that you're just falling apart. You want to do it in a way that it actually shows the truth. And it's, it's a balance, which I think you pulled off in this article unintentionally, because clearly you weren't intending to be vulnerable. But, that, but again, that just shines through in what you're doing. And I think good leaders are able to do that naturally. I actually, so quick sort of side story. I have a friend who's a venture capitalist, who's also a, a physician. We went to med school together and his, he was talking to me about this, about how he's had to make decisions around COVID-19 for the companies that he invests in, that he's on the board of, that have been just rending and the way he does it is with open vulnerability he's like this is the hardest thing i've had to i hate this i'm scared you're scared I, this is the best of the worst decisions i think i could still have it wrong but i need to do this and i'm sorry and and people respect that they respond to that because they don't see the obfuscation that so many administrations seem to put on and and what i think people don't realize or they convince themselves is not the case, that people see right through it. Yeah, they see right through the it. Doctors, they know what the story is about PPE. They know. They know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, so coming up with that framework of how you're going to present it, everybody knows what that process is. <laughs> exactly. This is the corporate spin. This is administrator speak. This is the email that has it parsed out that someone thought overthought and legal over has reviewed. Yeah. Legal has reviewed. That's the key thing. That's why I, I, I no longer do a lot of sponsored episodes because when they, when legal has to review, I'm like, well, now the deal's off because that's not a show that my audience cares about. And, um, and, and I think it's interesting. Now, one thing I want to make sure that we don't, uh, forget is the stigma in healthcare about admitting that you have you have feelings or difficulties and some of that stigma is because on our licensing apps we have to write oh were you treated for this or, or have you had a problem with that it's really terrible and it dissuades people and then the cultural stigma around hey you just suck it up and what are your thoughts around that so i love the fact that <clears throat> that frontline workers are being called heroes right now and it worries me very much. <laughs> yeah, I feel the same way. Because heroes don't cry. And, you know, heroes are not vulnerable. And they're the ones who save the world and kind of, you know, okay, I'm good. Um, so that part of it worries me. I, I, I don't want to change that because I think we need it right now desperately. But I also want, I want the frontline healthcare workers to realize you can be a hero in that room and you don't have to be one after, mm. right? That you can, you know, when you take, when you doff, you, you're taken off your cape. It's okay. Mm. Like it's okay to be human at that point. Um, 
so, you know, I, I think there's, there's that whole other piece of medical licensing boards and PHPs that is just a quagmire that I think that might be one of the other silver linings in this whole challenge is finally getting those off of licensing board applications and renewal licensing renewals. Mm. Uh, that would be a wonderful thing and it would change a lot. And then also having good insurance coverage for mental health care. Uh, one thing you mentioned that's, that kind of struck me, the idea that heroes don't show vulnerability and don't take off, you know, when they're, they're the rock, right? So this act of calling healthcare workers heroes is almost, it's perceived by some healthcare workers as a way of saying, you will work until you die. And we're very grateful for that, but we're not going to support you at all. And so that's an important, important point. And, and I don't, I don't think that's, uh, the general public is not thinking that way. Not the public. I mean, they are, yeah. They are desperate to support frontline workers. That's right. Not the general and public. So, yeah. I am, I am so grateful for that to think that all of New York City lights up every night at seven o'clock with this rag, this huge racket. I mean, that's awesome. It's pretty awesome, and and it's a way of reaffirming why we went into this, so that it's a calling. Now, what what was so the one thing that it reminded me of was in Superman Two, which is uh, yeah, it's hard to remember. It was one of my favorite uh, superhero films because it happened when I was growing up, like 1980 or something. In <laughs> Superman 2, these bad guys come from wherever, but Superman gives up his powers in order to be with Lois Lane. And he suffers indignity after indignity after indignity, like some somebody crushed, the guy crushes his hand and he's beaten up in a bar in Alaska. And that's when you start to love Superman because you mm -hmm. see that He's a hero, but he's also this vulnerable human being with frailties that when you see them, you go, I can relate to that. And that's what makes him real. Then when he gets his powers back, you're rooting for him. You're like, man, I like you, bro. Um, and I think we we could take a lesson from Superman too, right? Uh, Kneel before Zod, for people who know. Uh, nobody knows that movie. Uh, but anyway, so... You just really dated yourself, I gotta I, I, tell you. I date myself every single day, just like I used to in high school because I had no real dates. But there's the, the, another side there. But so, so Wendy, what sort of sort of important parting thoughts do you want to impart here? Because I want to have you back on the show to talk about this and follow up with this, also on the moral injury standpoint, because this is a big movement now that you've started that we need to understand that un understanding moral injury is important to understanding the solutions to it. So please. So I think that these moral injury was a big problem before we got, before the pandemic arrived, right? Like we, we layered the pandemic on top of an already challenging healthcare system. And I really think that the, the, moral injury has morphed and it's magnified in the context of COVID and we need to pay attention to it and we need to start working you know we need to somehow get administrators and executives to recognize that it's in their best interest you know the, their clinicians are their most valuable resource and it is in their best interest to work together with them to to get to better medicine I think that's a great way to end the show because that ties everything together that we need to support our frontline and we also need to stop being so, the frontline needs to stop villainizing 
management and start to work with them and demand better communication, listening, vulnerability. I think we need to really start to demand that by showing it a little bit ourselves too. And we also need to be curious about what their challenges are. People don't understand how hard it is. And I remember, Wendy, I used to take a crap on healthcare administrators directly until I became one. Then I was like, this <laughs> job sucks. Like this I've hard. never hated a job as much as having, like managing physicians, managing physicians. You're supposed to lead them. Trying to manage them is like herding cats. Leading them is inspiring them and showing them that you're part of their tribe and also helping to keep the lights on and supporting them as best you can, but being realistic when you can't. It's a hard so that, balance. And, and that's the whole point, right, is if we can get to true servant leadership where we're saying, what do you need to facilitate your engagements with your patients how does this entire organization help to support you in being in providing better care for your patient? Yeah, yeah. You know, if it's one magic wand I could get rid of, it's all the corporate speak, it's all the BS legal crap, it's all the obstructions to open and honest communication. If we could get rid of that, and with our patients too, like think how much less malpractice insurance would be if we could just be honest with our patients. Dude, we made a mistake. It's a error that should not have happened and it did for these reasons we will never let it happen again we're going to change our process we're going to do all the root cause analysis we're going to apply just culture there are very few patients that would and families that would not hear that and and appreciate at least the sentiment of it and so i think that's important is this openness so but but wendy thank you for we finally got to do this. Yeah, this is great. It's really, really great. fun. Thank you and so much. Thank you for helping people. You really help a lot of people with this. You help me understand it better and communicate it better. And um, guys, I will put links to Dr. Dean's stuff in the description and on my website. If you like this kind of stuff, please share it with people. Share it with your administrators as an olive branch. Let's start talking and understanding each other better and stop uh, pointing the finger and fighting and let's get through this together. Let's support each other. And, um, and that would really mean a lot. It'll go a long way. All right, guys, let's find the silver lining in this crisis and do better in the future. All right, guys, I love you. We out. Peace. Hey, it's Dr. Z. Thanks for getting through the whole episode. That's a huge accomplishment. <laughs> and so at this point, I just got to ask you for a few favors because it just helps us so much if you leave a review on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe. It, it just really helps the algorithm to get this message out to others. The second thing is email me, hello at zdogmd.com. I get all these emails personally. I can't respond to them all, but I need to hear your voice because especially on podcast, we don't have a comment section. And I want to hear how this episode affected you, what you'd like to hear in the future, what you think we got wrong, what we think we got right, anything, anything, or just say hi. So that's really powerful. And the third thing is financially, it helps us a lot to support the show in any way you can. And if you go to zdogmd.com forward slash supporters, you can join our supporter tribe on your favorite platform, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, wherever. What that will get you on those platforms is live shows with me that are exclusive for supporters and access to our Zoom meetings where we talk about awakening realization and we share with each other our own experience. It's a powerful group effect. It's a community, really. And we support and love each other and share, again, through our own experience, how we're waking up. So, and that that ripples out into systems, into transforming healthcare and education and government. So it st really starts with us. So join us there if you can. Again, zdogmd.com forward slash supporters. And I'm so grateful. 
to have you with us.